Hello, and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host, Jarrett Stepman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantra Maitra. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the Opium Wars, both the important 19th century conflicts between China and Great Britain and the new conflict over China's role in the fentanyl crisis in the United States. Are we going through a reverse opium war? And this is, I think, a question that uh, has been, I think, popping up a lot in recent political debates. I actually, in, in, in preparing for this episode, found a, um, a speech from Senator Tom Cotton, which he said, specifically, the Chinese Communist Party has been waging an opium war in reverse against the United States for far too long. As tens of thousands of Americans have perished from overdoses, Chinese officials turned a blind eye to the drug criminals who profited off of our pain. And of course, there have been a number of op-eds and commentaries on Twitter and other social media wondering if this is the circumstances we find ourselves in, our sort of historical reversal of the opium wars that took place in the 19th century, if this is a kind of uh, you know, switching of the coats uh, between two sides. And I do think it brings up a lot of interesting issues and, of course, the historical issue, because a lot of people in the West don't know much about the opium wars. They don't know what this conflict is about, even though it's something that is very well known uh, in China. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we sort of tend to see China from the perspective of the Western gaze, as um, as sociologists uh, usually used to describe. Um, we also have this blinkered view about China, about the 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 China, which was like pro-West and before the Second World War. And then kind of like, you know, we used to go there and there were like missionaries who were in China and they were like kind of sort of like quasi allies to us. Um, and then obviously there's this, you know, Japan's invasion. Our history of that, uh, of the region kind of got skewered. Um, from the Chinese perspective, however, it is a little bit more nuanced, um, so to speak. I think the Chinese... At least those uh, like the Chinese power to be, those who dwell in mainland China and those who are currently uh, ruling the world, they tend to view uh, the Chinese misfortune at the hands of the British and the French and the other colonial powers and what they think led to uh, a century of humiliation and unequal treaties. And one of the first unequal treaties was after the first Opium War. So it's kind of like a pivot point in Chinese history where they see their old empire sort of giving away to this modernity. And that is something that they never desired to have, uh, but, they were, but it was thrusted upon them. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think Opium War is important, not in the context, just to the fact that like we're kind of like waking up the Chinese threat and uh, and as you rightly mentioned, like the Chinese influence in drugs and cartel trade in our southern border, but also um, China is turning out to be the biggest great power adversary, the United States. And to understand the Chinese viewpoint and how China views the US and what kind of leads to this rivalry is to understand how China sees its own history. And I think that's where opium war is uh, a very important point from where we can start. Yeah, I, I, I agree entirely. And as I said, I think not a lot's known in the West. And I think it, certainly in, I think, a lot of Chinese schools, they are taught about the century of humiliation. They're taught that, that they were victimized by the West and that there's a certain, of course, you know, they're kind of stirring up a lot of nationalism from Chinese to say that they did these terrible things to you. Now it's, you know, it's our turn to rise and maybe do things to them. I think that's a big part of this issue. Um, so I think kind of going back to what on earth even is the opium wars, you know, why on earth was anybody fighting uh, for or against opium? You know what this is about, uh, which I think is, again, it's like one of those major historical events, certainly in the history of China that gets neglected. It's seen as kind of a sideshow in the, in the 19th century because there were a lot of other conflicts happening around the globe. But as far as Eastern and Western relations, uh, this was this was a major one. It, it, I think what I think it showed is certainly the history is that some of the differences that were that existed between East and West caused a lot of conflict in a world that was at the time 
uh, rapidly, I guess you could say, globalizing, where, where trade between great nations of the world was becoming much more free-flowing. China's role in that, China, which was an immensely powerful uh, historical civilization, I mean, really, you could say historically, maybe the greatest civilization in the world, um, was thrown into that system that was changing under their feet, uh, that was being changed by the Western powers that were engaging in uh, free trade and trade ar around the globe. Uh, so it was kind of a historical wake-up call for China where their entire history, all that they had known as being the kind of middle kingdom, the the kind of great civilization with many smaller ones on their periphery with no rival uh, powers. There were no states like China around them. Yes, they had been conquered by 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 Mongols and various people, peoples, uh, but everybody knew that China was the center of civilization, certainly in that part of the world. And what changed in the 19th century is this realization that that was not an assured thing. And so I think, so again, going back to the original spark of the war, I think it's important to kind of tell a little of the history um, because, again, it is it is important to kind of set up why this happened. Um, it really kind of began, again, with a lot of the trade that happened in the 19th century, a lot of the contact between Great Britain and China, the trade that was going on between them. China saw uh, trade from globally as not very important to their own country. They didn't see imports as particularly valuable to China. They thought that they were better off without imports. Of course, you have rising powers like Great Britain, which didn't see things that way, which had had been constructing essentially a global trade empire. And so you had a series of almost quasi-treaties that happened between China and, U and the UK and the Portuguese, who were another big part of, I think, the kind of the increase in, in global trade. But a lot of them were very much unofficial. They were done between the East India uh, a company which was a, a British monopoly that wasn't really it was it had government approval but it didn't actually it wasn't actually a part of the British government and a lot of kind of informal relations uh, between uh, Chinese kind of businessmen who controlled a lot of the outlets uh, to to trade uh, in China and of course you had this issue which was the trade of opium which was this product that was something that was produced. Uh, in uh, largely in India, of course, China had some opium before this trade kind of circuit began. Um, but there was a lot of trade that was coming from India. And of course, the British at that time had already taken large parts of India and were, had used India to essentially uh, facilitate longer trade. And the Chinese essentially were mostly wanting the opium from India because it was a very popular product in China, not just for you know, people who are drug addicts, but for various medicinal purposes and whatnot. And there was an explosion of trade uh, because of because of the opium, because of the drug. Um, of course, there was a huge uptick in how much was actually coming into the country, especially in the 1830s. Uh, when in 1834, and I think this is really the kind of trigger for what followed, the British dissolved the East India Trading Company, which was actually a very big deal. When the company went down, the British sent an actual official representative to China to try to open up negotiations with China, an official channel. The Chinese didn't see this as appropriate. They saw this as uh, highly inappropriate because uh, somebody who's an official from another state shouldn't be able to see the Chinese government as an equal, which I think is very interesting because, of course, we talk about the end of the Opium Wars and the unequal treaties. Uh, part of what made the Chinese so upset about the relations with Great Britain and other Western powers is that they would have to treat them as equals. That was something that was very much a historical outlier in Chinese history. The only state that they had actually treated with yep. anything even close to equality was actually Russia because they had lost a, a brief war with them and had to have a treaty in the 1720s, basically treating them sort of quasi as equals. And so, of yep. course, you get to the point where in... 1739, there's a, 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 a Chinese commissioner named Lin Zheshu, who was kind of the, the kind of driving force behind the eventual opium wars, who realizes, of course, that 
In China, there's a huge problem with an uptick in opium that a lot of people's lives are being destroyed by this. Uh, decides to crack down on the opium that's that's being uh, imported. And what's really interesting is before there had been previous crackdowns on opium, um, but even when the government tried to crack down, a lot of the commissioners and a lot of the agents of the government actually facilitated the increase of opium to the country because they were making a profit off it. They had corrupt uh, bargains with many of the actual businessmen to basically turn a blind eye to it. So whenever the, the Chinese state would try to crack down, they would actually end up with more opium. Um, then, of course, Lin Jishu makes this kind of, he's a very committed, I think, dedicated official, decides that actually we're going we're gonna to bring a halt to this. So they begin to confiscate opium. They put out a decree, essentially, if you're found with opium, yet you'll be just immediately executed, and began to confiscate the, the opium from British merchants. Just just arbitrarily, just shut down the ships. We're going to take your opium, and if you're found with opium, uh, we'll kill you. And so right. the British, of course, if you know the history of British law, the, the arbitrary confiscation based on a, a whim or decree was seen as an attack on private property. And right. it was a violation of the rights of British citizens to be given a, a fair trial. And so... Lin Jiaxu's aggressive attitude toward eliminating opium triggered the British to think that they couldn't do business with the Chinese because their citizens would be rounded up, their officials would be punished for the mistakes of others because collective punishment was very much an idea that was very strong in Chinese society. If, if the something happens with one of your underlings, the guy in charge is going to be punished for it. That was a very just common notion. So you had vast differences in how the two societies saw the law, which I think was really the spark for the war. And I guess that's uh, that's my historical hot take is that <laughs> the opium wars were actually in some ways justified on the on behalf of the British because of the very different interpretations of how the law was supposed to work, of how relations between what and I think Western law is equal sovereigns, how that's supposed to take place. Um, the Chinese had very strict rules about kowtowing to the, to the Chinese emperor, that you had to essentially partake in ceremonies showing the proper relationship, which was of the Chinese state being superior and all others being vassals, that the British right. didn't take that very well, and many others didn't as well. And so you see that there are now massive cultural and legal and political differences that exist between East and West that created many of the misunderstandings, I think, that took place at that time. Yeah, I think you touched upon quite a few interesting points there. I, I would like to draw it back to something that you mentioned about um, the decline of Chinese economic power after like almost like 1,500 years, um, broadly speaking. Um, throughout the... Throughout the, the the 1500 years before you know the modernity happened and industrial revolution happened in the Europe, um, the two there was this graph that came out in Economist about the top GDPs currently um, in if measured in the area of modern countries and for almost 1500 years the top two were India and China and obviously you know there was Rome and then there were the Ottomans. Um, you know, which is like modern to Turkey and then France and Britain kind of like came up around 16th and 17th century. So I think that's uh, an interesting idea, which is tied up to the second point that you mentioned that the Chinese didn't see all these countries as equal. So historically, anyone who ruled in Chinese heartland, they considered themselves to be a very distinct uh, civilizational entity. Um, you're right. They got defeated by Russians once, and they had huge trade deals with the Roman Empire, but they never really had that much of a connection with the Indians because of the southern border, because of the Himalayas. They were like, obviously, you know, the the passage of Buddhism, you know, the the spread. Uh, they were like Chinese philosophers like Fahian who came to India and wrote about the uh, like Indian pottery skills and all that kind of stuff. But overall, there wasn't too much of civilizational interaction between these two massive economies. The only interactions that the Chinese had were the, from the people from the West who used to come and buy Chinese stuff like silk uh, and then kind of like go back and sell it. Um, so the Chinese 
in a in a, in an interesting way like this the 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 irony of the situation that it's kind of like paradoxical in a way is the chinese see that injury of humiliation because they think that the western has never really treated them uh, at par but it originally stems from the idea that the chinese were superior to all these you know western civilizations which were there and it almost kind of feels like they felt that they were torn down from that from that podium from that from that place of reverence that was uh, endowed upon them for at least almost a thousand years so that's one of the things the second interesting point that happened was uh, and this is somewhat like of a different inter- historical interpretation i'm going to talk to you like i want you to explain more when you when we talk later on about this um the britain and france was constantly at war so this idea and you're right this idea that the opium war was kind of like imposed on china by britain being you know uh, being british in a way is <laughs> is is somewhat stressed to the point that britain didn't really actually care about the chinese inside governance if you see how the british dealt with the rest of the empire um they never really cared about the i mean yes there was like their opposition to sati and you know widow burning and all the kind of social ills but overall the governing structure of british empire in places whether it's whether it's in africa or whether it's in india were left intact they modified and they imposed the the indian penal code was based on common law but those were like superficial the basic governing structure of like you know the landowners um you know the the the, the bureaucracy was kind of like kept in that in India. So they didn't really care much about the Chinese governing structure either. What happened was around the early parts, around the late parts of the 18th century, because of the Industrial Revolution, the British position of you know production increased a lot more. And at that point of time, they were getting a lot of raw materials from India, which was being produced in the chimneys of Birmingham and Manchester, coming back and flooding the markets of, of Asia. So that's one thing that happened. And around the same time, Britain was in this massive war with China, uh, w- with France. So what happened, for example, in 18, I think it was in 1802 or, um, or 1808 or something like that, um, uh, when the British Marines, for example, seized Macau. And then, right. you know, they fired upon Chinese ports and stuff like that. So, it, 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 so the interesting part of this story is, uh, on, on one hand, Britain wanted to have uh ha- wanted to have their their common law you know maintained when it comes to british merchants and british ships and you know the the op- the opening of the trade routes and the sea routes were important to britain as well but on the other hand it was also a very really parochial way of looking at the world that britain was essentially fighting a war with france whether it's in you know in, in the us in the war of 1812 you know whether it was in india in in the south of india whether it was in in eastern parts of asia and that kind of like spilled on to this factor. So Britain had this huge Asian empire. And if the Chinese make an example of just, you know, seizing British ships without Britain kind of like doing anything in return, that would show their weakness to the French. And then that would in turn affect, you know, the morale of in the European war. So I think that's an important part. Like that's um, not justifying... Some of the British accents, for example, like, you know, there were like, there, there were some Scottish drug dealers, for example, who were like yeah. making a lot of money selling opium in China and like smuggling goods inside. But overall, I think you're right. I think the, the, the geostrategic aim of Britain was uh, a defense of British resolve um, when, when, when their ships were like being broken down or being raided by the Chinese. And paradoxically, the, the, the China... So it was kind of like a spiral where the Chinese were thinking, oh, these European upstarts who are not even like a power up until like 200 years back, you know, they're suddenly just, you know, they're all over the place and they're like taking, you know, think, they're doing things that we used to do. Like we used to keep an order in these places, like these port towns. And suddenly these guys are just all here. And on the other hand, the British are like, yeah, fine. You wore an internal kind of culture producing, but that production is gone. Like there were like hand weavers of silk and now we have like mass produced garments and so you know you, your time is up our time is now and if you if you harm us like that changes the way the world views us and since we are in this globe spanning war with our major rival we can't allow you know we can't afford to do that 
So I think that spiral kind of affected uh, Britain and Chinese perceptions of each other as well. I think that's what you were allu alluding to as well. A hundred percent. And I, I think that was a huge part of what led to the eventual military conflict, which was actually not very popular uh, in Great Britain, it was not a popular war back home. People didn't want to have to go to you know send you know send in the the, the ships and the and the, the troops, yeah, uh, for this this kind of what seemed to be like a, an obscure kind of situation. They didn't understand it. They didn't want to be involved in it. It also seemed again unseemly. You know, we're talking about opium and a drug that was looked upon you know looked down upon in society. I think rightly so. You know, why are we forcing this upon them? However, certainly from the, the perspective of the, the British commissioners there, Charles Elliott, who really kind of saw this conflict opening up and happening, of course, based on, again, the Chinese unwillingness to deal with the British as equal partners in negotiation. I think this is actually something that we kind of take for granted in the modern world when I say that equal negotiations. I don't mean that countries necessarily recognize each other as equal powers. You know, when France mm -hmm. and Belgium are negotiating with each other, it's not as if they're two the same. However, they negotiate in the sense that one side is an ambassador, the other side has an ambassador. You don't bow to, you know, the French authorities. You, you treat each other as sovereign equals. And that was something that China had a great difficulty with based on its own history. This was not the nature of their relations. For a country like Great Britain, in fact, many Westerners who, many of whom very much admired China and, and the East. I mean, this was actually, it's funny because the idea is sort of that, well, this is about kind of Western chauvinism toward China. In some ways, it was actually the reverse and that right. Westerners thought that they had a great deal to, to gain from their, their, their relations with China to learn and to gain. And over time actually ended up having, and the Chinese thought that they had nothing to gain from the West. That these are just simply uh, recent, the most recent, you know, barbarians incursions uh, on right. their borders and they'll be gone soon and things will return to how they are as usual for a lot of the Westerners who felt very much mistreated by the Chinese and doing something they thought was just normal, natural, which is increased trade across the globe. Um, they felt put upon and they started yeah. to see the Chinese, Hey, maybe these people, not only are these people, not superior to us, they're actually not, they're, they're inferior. Their, their system is backward. They, they harass our citizens. They treat people unequally. Um, and we're tired of taking this. We're not going to let them do this to our citizens. We can't lose face. As you said, in the face of other global empires, with the, the conflict between France and Great Britain at that time was very intense. There was a lot of yeah. global international rivalries that were taking place. If you're seeing that a weak country is harassing your people and arbitrarily imprisoning your citizens, um, you know, you, you, you lose power as a nation. I mean, you may not be a nation in the future. I think that was an incredibly important thing at that time to show that you were strong enough and had enough of a, uh, uh, characters of people to defend the rights of your citizens. So when Lin Jeshu began to arbitrarily arrest British citizens in China just to throw them in jail and actually killed some just arbitrarily, this was seen as a, an, an aggressive attack on, on the rights of a British citizen. In fact, there was one speech I think that took place in Parliament that you know we need to make sure that British citizenship is seen the same way that Roman citizenship would have been seen in times of old. That if you do something arbitrarily to a Roman citizen, there's going to be hell to pay. Where you know, the, the the Roman the legions will come after you. And I think that that was the message that the British were sending. Now, of course, it ended up being a a message that was taken very far, in which a small detachment of British ships and soldiers ended up wreaking havoc in China and really doing enormous damage to the regime that was unable to keep up militarily at all. Yeah. An emperor who was making, calling all the shots, but had no real understanding of what was happening because so many of his lieutenants were lying to him about what was yeah. actually happening. So you had a huge number of miscommunications where the British continued to rack up victory after victory, and the Chinese simply get more and more belligerent. They think that their emperor thinks they're literally winning the war, and that wasn't the case. And so you can see right. why this thing turned into a massive war that was sort of that nobody really wanted, that certainly the Chinese merchants didn't want, the, uh, the British citizens at home didn't really want. You know, few, few people wanted to have a huge war with, with this, this great, powerful empire. But the war developed anyway and led to, I think, a lot of transformations in the world thereafter. 
I think I think that's very interesting. The point that you make.、Uh, finally, I think one of the things that happened in those days in China is something that you kind of read in Marxist literature is the perception of China to be this huge, massively powerful, and extremely centralized, very efficient bureaucratic empire was essentially not true, and it was massive. It was extremely centralized. It was extremely bureaucratic, but. What happens in majority of the centralized and bureaucratic powers is that they don't have a proper channel of doing reviews on their own performance, essentially, because it that is the that is the nature of all totalitarian systems is because they are not democratic and because there is no that checks and balance included. Like people just keep saying things that they tend to kind of like start believing their own propaganda. So I think that was an interesting part of the story. Uh, one of the reasons why,、uh, like the first opium war, is very interesting, is on on the British side, that actually you're right. They didn't really want to go to war. They wanted to have kind of like a punitive raid and show their power and show their resolve and move back. Like Lord, I think it was Lord Melbourne who was、um, who was then.、Um, One of the one of the top guys、uh, who ordered、um, this this bombardment of of a Chinese port, which I think killed like forty seven Chinese soldiers or something, which started the, essentially the conflict.、Um, and then that there was this miscommunication, and because you know this this perception, mean, it's kind of similar to how Russia was viewed before the Ukraine war, like this massive marathon army that is completely capable of doing everything that it wants to do. But overall, like when you know when you get punched in the face, you kind of like your you know your 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 real performance kind of starts showing. So the, this this massive bureaucratic Chinese army, which which manpower wise, it's huge, but then they were really not competent enough to face. One modern technology, you know, due to the Industrial Revolution. Two, British warships were state of the art compared to, you know, really primitive sort of like Chinese naval designs. Three, the British strategy of war of bombarding ports and kind of like destroying, wrecking havoc, and that in turn chips away to the to the to the emperor's authority. So, in in one hand, the the and. And the Chinese and the Marxist literature. If you read the, if the current, you know, obviously that's kind of like a one-sided argument. But if you if you see the Chinese government sources, they kind of see that due to the influx of capital in these port cities,、uh, there was this spread of a decadent culture which was spreading, and you know, and all these drug addictions and all this kind of like evil Western things, which was which was kind of a prostitution, all that kind of thing, which was coming with it, and. And the Chinese emperor and the Chinese government government was trying to stop that, and they were like issuing decrees after decrees, and nothing was happening because none of these people actually care about their central government in power. So when an actual conflict started happening, and you're right, like you know the the war was not reaching to the emperor; he was like staying in a very cocooned way,、um, and he was hearing from his subordinates that oh everything is going fine, nothing to worry about, like we are giving them a bloody nose. But you know that's not really happening. Like you know, the the majority of you know the Chinese export system, which happened through the riverine ports that goes to the sea, were all destroyed by the British during the Opium Wars,、right. and the Chinese economy sort of like started to collapse. Like they couldn't get the money, they couldn't get grain supplies, you know,、uh, and 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 that in turn pushed the emperor to this unequal deal. And I think I think this is also and that. The another important point, and I want you to kind of like allude to that as well because you know that more than me,、um, is the the differing ways、um, on how Japan, China, and India sort of dealt with them. I mean, India was essentially at that point of time part of Brit- British Empire anyway. Like there was this entirely new class of governing, you know, systems which was coming out, and they were pro-imperial. You know, now obviously、right. we have this. Revisionist history of like, oh, it was always resisting the British Empire. It wasn't, you know. Majority of the people supported、uh, the British Empire during the mutiny of 1857 because they didn't want to go back to the to the feudal era of you know of widow burning and religious taxes、right. and all that kind of stuff. But China and Japan took very different ways. Japan modernized. They got, you know, they took the example of the West. They saw what they can do, the technological advancements, the science and technology of what's happening. Whereas China sort of like cocooned itself even more, like they they didn't do anything. They were humiliated, and they just kind of like sort of went on with it. 
Yeah, it's funny because the, the the big outlier in China was the very district that the British ended up taking at the end of the Opium War, which was Canton or what we call Hong Kong, which right. many yeah. of the Chinese citizens who lived there very much enjoyed the kind of system that the British had created there. People there were making money. They were much more prosperous. The British legal system was oftentimes much fairer and more just than, than the Chinese legal system. And the reason the British created this was to so that they would no longer have to deal with the arbitrary rules of under um, Chinese the Chinese system. Yeah. But it shows the kind of dramatic difference in how China developed compared to Hong Kong. Like when, when Hong Kong... Uh, became essentially part of mainland China once again. It was something I something like 60% or, or more of their economy. It was just incredible based on a very long-term uh, deal that they had with the British, essentially under Br the British system, this, this very small part of what was an enormous country, uh, how it went on a very different path uh, from, from mainland China. And I think you're absolutely right about the, the difference between, uh, say, Japan and China and how their fortunes ended up being quite different, certainly in the late 19th and early 20th century. China decided that essentially that this was a historical aberration, that the world will eventually right. return to how it should be, how it's properly supposed to be with China at the center of things. Japan didn't really have that history. Japan was kind of peripheral to, ch to China. It, they didn't have this... Uh, I mean, you could say this kind of uh, hubris about their own civilization, the sense, of course, the Japanese believe that their civilization was a great civilization. But when they saw uh, the difference, certainly in the technological uh, sophistication of a lot of the Western technology, and of course, when uh, Admiral Matthew Perry of, of the U.S. Navy showed up with the black ships in 1850 right. in a Tokyo Bay, this was a massive wake up call for their society in which they decided that they were not going to allow essentially the, the barbarians from outside to to split them up and tear them apart that they were going to learn the lessons from these these strange people from from far away and that they were going to adapt them to their own society and culture and be on par uh with the west which in many cases they did had one of the most incredible uh periods of modernization i think in all of human history i'm not sure if there even is a comparison that matches what Japan did between the years of 1850 uh, and really even by the time of 1902, 1903, where Japanese military uh, performed very well against the Russian military and actually basically won a war against Russia, yeah. which was a shocking thing at the time that this, this, you know, this, this weak country that was basically had isolated itself for such a long period of time was beating a European power on the That's high right. seas and on land was, was stunning. And so, but of course, China took a very different path. By that time, China was already the system that they had. Their government was in, the, in a stage of, of collapse. Uh, the old Manchu governors, China was not actually ruled uh, by the Han or the Chinese. It was actually ruled by essentially which were Mongols who had taken control of the apparatus of government in the country. That government started to collapse because people were losing faith and how things were operating. They were falling further and further behind. And of course, the chaos of the early 20th century in which they were oftentimes peripheral to a lot of the uh, the conflicts that were happening globally because they were in a position of economic and political weakness. Um, and again, this is yeah. part of the, their, their conception, the century of humiliations. And this is so far outside of the traditional Chinese experience. And this is just that that is the historical outlier for their civilization. And I think a large part, maybe this gets to kind of the modern issues with China's China's desperate to sort of restore that that global order. They think that this needs there needs to be a kind of return to where China is kind of at the center of the global system in their own particular way, uh, much like how it used to be, how it should have always been. That this is just this is this has been a kind of, uh, you know, step around. The, the kind of course of history that we need to we need to return to that. And I think that's that's right. part of what's driving a lot of now the modern competition between uh, the West, the United States in and communist China is this kind of difference in how the civilizations see the world and China reasserting itself uh, at the kind of the, the top of the hierarchy, the way it, how things should be, as I said, they think that it should be. So, Jared, I, I want to, you know, kind of like um 
continue on this topic for a little while. You you mentioned that Japan had this, and and absolutely rightly so. Like it, it had this huge, it was it completely isolated. It had just wars with Korea and the Korean Peninsula, which but they had a history, and then it kind of like isolated itself and then modernized. Whereas we didn't see that kind of trajectory in China, like the, the Chinese essentially, even after the Opium Wars, kind of like cocooned itself, very close, just only, you know, uh, producing resources for the Western powers. And then there was this rebellion and then all the Western powers kind of like ganged up on them and they hate that as well. Um, and then the dawn of the, you know, 20th century, uh, every single Western power kind of like combined and came together to, to beat up on China. So I think that's uh, that's an interesting point. The question, though, is why? I mean, and I and I, I obviously history is not monocausal, but I don't. I mean, that's something which I think we should kind of like think about like, as to why did China? Because if we see the modern Chinese version and the way they treat uh, what they consider to be their allies, technically, but essentially their subordinates. I think that old Chinese instinct is kind of like coming out in a way, right? I mean, when when you see how the Chinese are dealing with the Sri Lankans, you know, you know he, we have given you money and you can't, you know, repay us back. So we're just going to take your port and something like that. And or, or, or the Chinese, you know, influence in Africa or Afghanistan or Pakistan or, you know, or the, or the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. I think that, or even like the Wolf Warrior Diplomacy on online, you know, the way, yeah. you, you know, it, it, that, that, that ancient culture, of like we are a separate entity and we belong in this rightful place. Um, it, it was robbed from us. Is there any justification to that idea that it was robbed from them? Like, was that because of the, you know, from the time period of the first Opium War to the Boxer Rebellion and then to the First World War? Is that, is, can, can it be any way justified that essentially... Uh, they were suppressed, and otherwise they could have flourished. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I just, I don't buy that idea that they were suppressed. Right. I mean, again, it's they're sometimes the the victims of their own, you know, belief that and their superiority because they end up making a lot of other countries resentful and hateful. Of course, when you get and when you get an alternative to that, they they turn to it. I mean, it's kind of what you know, whatever you could say about the West right now. Oftentimes, it's a lot better to think, well, hey, we're going to cooperate, we're going to make money together, than, well, we're going to have to, in a modern sense, kowtow to you uh, and be potentially abused. And if, and if you're on a whim, uh, you can decide to you know, renege on your deals and to, to harm our country and to treat other countries as if they are merely satellites uh, in a larger uh, global system. I think that creates a lot of resentment. Um, and a lot of their, their so-called, you know, vassals don't end up doing so well for themselves. I mean, we can see North yeah. Korea is in kind of like the situation that old Korea was into China, which is a kind of vassal state, a, a kind of puppet vassal state that's highly dependent on China, um, both economically, militarily, that just is completely stunted in its growth and development because of that situation, because of it's that relationship. Of course, it's a lot of it's their, their own fault as well. Um, but I think for many people around the globe, it's it's kind of a on one hand, the Chinese are very much willing to to spend money. They've they've, of course, engaged heavily in investments in in Africa and in large parts of the globe and a lot of developing countries. And they those countries yeah. like that they like the initial development. They don't like what that will ultimately come with uh, years down the line when they realize that this is not an equal relationship. This is not uh, this is not what the Chinese desire. Uh, you are essentially a subordinate to their interests. And as soon as their interests cross with yours, uh, they're going to stomp you. And, and it could be, it doesn't, doesn't mean to be militarily, but they will do so economically. And I think that that has created a huge amount of problems for China. And again, it's why, you know, going back to why Japan actually succeeded for a while, because they looked at their weakness at the time as not a time to just say, well, you know, we're going to continue things as usual and treat others as, vassals it was we need to modernize our industries we need to create yeah. our own domestic industries we need to have a modern navy we need to send our young men uh to uh war colleges in the united states and to harvard and to yale i mean there was a reason why you yeah. know yamamoto studied at i believe he studied at, at harvard i mean they were studying yeah, yeah. in western schools to pick up well they're clearly doing something right we can adapt that to our own society and and do things right here and quick, and I think China has has done some of that certainly in the modern sense, but I think for a very long time, uh, there was a 
huge cultural prohibition on that. Again, it's their long-term history. that They had never experienced anything like this in the history of Chinese civilization. There had been no precedent for what was happening to them at that time. They had never encountered opponents like, you know, Great Britain and the United States. These, these things were just not a part of their history. Most of their contact with the world had been with very much unequal societies. Yeah. And so it was an adjustment for them that others were able to better handle because of their own history. Um, so I, I think that's I think that's the reason that things developed. I don't think it's because um, uh, the things were just very unfair toward toward China. I think it's because of their historical circumstances. Do you think like they when like the, the, I mean, of, of course, there's like justification in saying like the, 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 the Chinese fentanyl is stopped like pouring across our southern border in the US. But do you think that's partly the reason is how the Chinese have this blinkered sense of history like they kind of see not just them coming to uh, to their rightful position as the center of the of the of the universe like they they are the central financial power of the globe uh, but also they kind of even if they don't, I mean there is no way of proving whether it's uh, I I don't know at least I don't see a way I'm not privy to the you know the Chinese government planning commission or decisions but they have at least this basic understanding that um west is kind of like uh, uh, a victim of its own decadence and uh, they did the same thing to us and we're going to do the same thing to them do you think that's a justified valid statement i i think that's certainly the way they see it i mean of course actually understanding what's going on with right. the chinese government is very difficult to understand no way to process exactly trace, yeah. right nothing really gets to it. so we can see the results of it, of course. Now, part of it, you can say, especially with the fentanyl issue, is, of course, China produces so many other pharmaceuticals that we simply do not produce. It's all coming from China, and that's maybe part of our own problem, is that much of what we need is simply not produced here. So, of course, we become uh, even vulnerable to the things that they they do produce, or we simply don't have them in the case of other uh, more positive uh, products. that. And I think that's been revealed to, I think, Westerners, especially in the last few years, especially after the emergence of COVID-19 and what that has caused and the, the kind of uh, outcomes of that. Um, so I, I do think that there is a mentality, I think, in China. And certainly, look, there, there is a lot of, I, I would say this is how it is taught in schools of the, about the century of humiliation that they did to the, this to us. It's, we, we were victims. Of course, it's blended with a lot of Marxist ideology as well. Yeah. Um, you know, this is the, the decadent capitalist class that did this to us. As long as we stay true to socialism, Marxism, uh, then we will triumph over the, the, the decadent West, which is funny because especially on the opium issue, the, the, the Communist Party actually, you know, very much made it a point like opium was, a you know, this, this horrible thing that came from the West, even though the, the Maoist Party, Mao, actually attempted to control the production of opium in China at that point. By the 20th century, China was making mostly its own opium. They actually try to control right. the product and try to use it themselves on some of their competition within China. So they, this is not unprecedented for them to use the drug, even on their own population that had ideological differences. Um, so they were very much willing to use the drug as a kind of uh, their own kind of chip in, in international uh, tanglings. So, I mean, this is not unheard of from the Chinese Communist Party. They like the rhetoric of victimization because, of course, it, it makes people think that what they're doing, everything what they're doing is just and good. And in uh, that feeling, you know, we shouldn't have been humiliated in this sense. You know, the world should not have been this way. And now we're getting this is payback time. And I think there yeah. is that mentality that very much exists. Um, I think there's maybe some justification in the sense that, yes, obviously, opium was a highly destructive uh, thing in their society. But. I would say that you know after the the opium wars ended, you know by the late, end of the 19th century, most of the opium was not coming from the British Empire. It, it was no longer coming from the British Empire. They were producing their own. They had their own domestic crop, and you know th this was a problem in their own society that they were unable to deal with. And of course, you know pinning the blame on others, which maybe you you know you could say even from a Western perspective. We can't fall in the trap and thinking that the issues of fentanyl are all China's problems. You know, that's, that's right. From, that's right. That, hey, you know, it's not it's not our fault that fentanyl is coming into America. It's all China's fault. I think there is a reason to put pressure on China to 
stop dealing with with horrible Mexican uh, drug cartels. But some of it's on ourselves as well. I mean, we have, uh, you know, we are sovereign, self-governing country. We wouldn't have as many problems with Mexican drug cartels if we did a better job of controlling our border and making sure those drug cartels don't come here and don't have any power here. So there's a certain amount of, yes, China is maybe very much instigating the current reverse opium war. Uh, but but we as a society, as Americans, have a duty to protect our own interests and our own people. And so if we're not doing that, then we will ultimately have ourselves to blame. I mean, there's nobody else to blame besides ourselves if we allow that to happen. I think that's a very good segue to the to the final position before we discuss the books that we're reading. I think I was planning to ask you anyway, like what lessons could we draw from from the from the I wouldn't go in as far as saying it's like collapse. Like it, China didn't really have a collapse kind of like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example. But their the the way the Chinese uh, sort of disappeared from the world stage from being a great power and then came back sort of after the communist revolution. But in that in that phase in between, like what lessons could we draw? Like in my opinion, I think the two lessons that we can draw is one, the ideological cocoon that the Chinese government and the bureaucracy, I mean, that, that sort of, I mean, there is this idea on the new right that we have to take power and take control of their own government, but also, you know, one should always be skeptical of this system of governments where you have this massive bureaucracy and uh, you don't really get information. You kind of live in an echo chamber. You have this, you know, media that's just constantly reflecting your own talking points to yourself. I think that's something which is a huge lesson for our modern times as well. And the second is, as you mentioned, uh, the inability of the state to ensure law and order within its own boundaries or within its own borders. I think those are the two very important lessons in my opinion. What other things could we learn from the from the from the from the dawn of the Chinese uh, century of humiliation? I think that the idea about about justice is is actually the kind of the last point you made about you know justice within your own borders is an extremely is an extremely important one. I think that yeah. there's this idea in America that you know there's a two tiered system of justice that are that that basic justice is not being upheld is becoming arbitrary and i think that is very dangerous especially in a, in a western society yeah. I, I think it was a major problem for china Again, it was part of the, the the differences between east and west that caused a lot of the conflict and so i i think that is a very big one the, the disintegration of traditional norms of anglo-american justice that have been extremely positive and have been one of the reasons why countries like great britain the united states rose in this world and had so much success, economic right. success, cultural, social success that was so appealing. Like that, that was it's our it's our legal system. It's this idea um, yeah. of natural higher law. It's this idea that you know you can you you have a tr you have a fair trial that you're not just arbitrarily punished. And yeah. you know, of course, when there are arbitrary punishments, it, I mean, who's in charge of making those punishments? Is it some is it some cor corrupt official who decides that he doesn't like you and wants to throw you uh, in jail and, and get a, do away with you? That was very common uh, in China. I mean, there were, of course, there were good people within that system who did the right thing and, and were very committed. Many others were not and used that uh, to to abuse their fellow citizens. And I think that is uh, a really important aspect of this. I think that another one, of course, is when you do have a system like China's in which of course you had arbitrary government that was, of course, everything was controlled by the emperor, but at the same time was highly bureaucratic and that yes, the, the buck stopped with the emperor. Um, but the emperor frequently didn't even know what was happening in his own country. There were so many layers of bureaucracy. There was no, there was absolutely no accountability whatsoever in their society. And in fact, that, that created a society in which, lies existed up and down the system which led yeah. to this this terrible war with an, a, an opponent that they had no business fighting and they had no business fighting the british empire at that time and i think many within china who had firsthand knowledge of how the british operated and worked knew this was a problem knew this was not a war that they were going to win they had seen firsthand what the british were capable of but because those who were making the decisions and unfortunately there were many people making a lot of decisions not necessarily based on the interests of their country it led them to this complete catastrophe where not only did they immediately start to lose against the british 
they were never able to even call off the war when things were going south and end up with with a much worse negotiation with the British because the British wanted to end the war. The the emperor of China wanted to keep it going because, well, hey, we're winning. So let's keep going. I'm not going to you know take this from these these barbarians. And so it ended up in the the worst possible treaty uh, from their perspective. Um and I think the, the long-term decline of their society and their government leading to revolutions that took place and their, their century of weakness because of those decisions, how their government was constructed and how their society was constructed at that time. Uh, and then, again, it's, you know, the comparison with Japan. Japan centralized and modernized. They, um, they they kind of include this kind of new elite, a merchant elite that they included in the samurai class. They did many things to kind of centralize their society and create more accountability so that they would actually be able to deal with the challenges before them. The Chinese didn't do that. They ended up in revolutions, some that were some of the bloodiest in history. And we didn't really talk much about uh, the Taiping Rebellion that took place about yeah. the same time as the American Civil War, in which there were 20, 30 million casualties. So this is unbelievable uh amount of bloodshed based on one character this man named hong who was a <laughs> uh, chinese official who failed the civil service exam that they had in their country which of course succeeding the civil service exam was like a, a ticket to being part of the elite if you failed you were nobody so you yeah. study your whole life he takes exam four or five times can't fails over and over again has some kind of psychological episode, then thinks he's the brother of Jesus Christ and leads this strange, declares himself the, the, the heavenly king and leads this very strange rebellion that takes place in China and completely upturns their society in which the government won with some Western aid at the end, but you could see that the long-term destruction of the society was coming, certainly of the government which had lost the faith of their people, which is a very traditional Chinese thing. You know, the Chinese... Yeah have gone through a series it's usually there's some kind of rebellion usually over the people are starving the government is failing to uphold the mandate of heaven and there's a new government that sweeps in that that can do that That's they right. went through that many times in the the late 19th and early 20th century they they landed on a new form of government that you know they i think you know they see as you know their way to counter the west you know who knows what that'll lead to in the future when things don't pan out for them either you know what's that going to mean for china's future um so i, I think that is a, a big lesson to be learned from this it was a system that was that failed to meet the moment and there was not a lot of accountability and the system snapped it completely broke down in a country that by many measures was the economically richest and most powerful in the world uh was looked at a century later as one of the weakest uh, in the world. And I think that's really a stunning turnaround from for, for a great country, great civilization. I think you're right. I think I think they were the most economic powerful state and most centralized state from manpower to production for at least over a over at least 1500 years. And then suddenly the, the scale of collapse was so sudden and so tragic that it's almost like unthinkable um, from our perspective. And, and as you mentioned, like typing rebellion, we didn't really talk much about it today. But obviously, uh, uh, we, we can dedicate that to a separate episode. Uh, but again, the scale of slaughter um, in, in that tragedy is just, it, it's unthinkable. Like we cannot even comprehend uh, the amount of barbarism that happened um, in, in a civil war. Um, and the second thing is, um, every Marxist society in some ways kind of, it, it's a funny quirk of history that they somehow start representing a kind of like a feudal system. Like, you know, there was this huge debate by, I think it was Stephen Kotkin who wrote that book, who said that like, you know, there was this debate in West um, in the 50s where the Stalin was essentially the new czar. And, um, and we are sort of kind of having the same debate about China and Xi Jinping about how cocooned him, you know, he is and how, what his new system, whether it's a new Mao, whether it's the new emperor, like whether he's even getting the, you know, the, the kind of like, um, confirmations about American or Western resolve. And I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to see um, in the future. What books would you recommend um, uh, for this episode? For yeah, the, I, I guess that's a time to discuss sort of what, what we've been reading and, and for, for further, I think, review on this issue. I Actually, one, I, I point to both the book and uh, an essay for my kind of hot take that um, 
the opium wars were at least partially justified on behalf of the British and weren't actually uh, <laughs> opium wars at all, that there were actually there were very many other issues. It was by a, a historian named Harry Gelber, um, has a book called uh, The Dragon and the Foreign Devils, which is actually a more general history about China. Um, but it gets into the opium wars. It gets into the, the issues that revolve around the opium wars. And he actually has another essay that I think he wrote in somewhere around 2006, uh, basically called The Opium War That Wasn't. And it kind of gets into the argument that this, you know, this the kind of narrative, I think, has developed both in China and the, and in the West, that this was a, a massively unjust war for, only for the purpose of, uh, releasing drugs in a Chinese society about greed and avarice isn't quite right and isn't really the full story. And I think that's what's really important in understanding about the opium wars, that there is more to it than that kind of simple narrative that I think gets passed down. Um, I, I think that there are definitely uh, some others. I think that um, there's actually a really interesting and older book by a, a Chinese scholar in the U.S. His name was Li Shen Nun. Uh, called The Political History of China, 1840 to 1928. It's an older book written in the 1950s. Um, I think it's a very, again, very interesting perspective on the Chinese turmoils uh, in the 19th and early 20th century, leading, of course, to the kind of downfall of their government and the revolutions that took place, leading, of course, to the communist revolution that took place, which I think is a, is a, very, is a very good one. Uh, again, an older book, a little different, an older perspective, but I think it's actually an excellent uh, discussion on this topic of modern China. Right. I would go with uh, this book that actually recently came out. It's uh, uh, a couple of, probably a few years back. It's called Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age by Stephen Platt. It talks about um, something that we discussed today about how essentially uh, the British response in Asia was uh, not something unique, but more of a of a global conflict uh, that they were going through with France anyway. And because of the Industrial Revolution, without the Industrial Revolution, some of the response would have been more muted. But because of the Industrial Revolution and superiority of technology, it gave Britain an option where it had a hammer and everything kind of looked like a nail. So, so I think that's a, that's an important perspective. And the second book, which is a more traditional history of the Opium War, uh, it's by Travis Haynes and Frank Sanello. It's called The Opium Wars, Addiction of One Empire and the Corruption of Another. It talks about how Britain and how the British society, essentially, saw the Opium War, as you mentioned, rightly, um, as something that they shouldn't be uh, proudly a part of because they thought, you know, around the same time, when they're fighting slavery and piracy across the globe, they are promoting opium in a country where people are dying. I mean, obviously, that's a that's a that's nominally a skewered, you know, uh, a way of looking at the world. The, you know, the the reality is way more complicated. But that's the more traditional view of that was in parts of British society at that point of time. So I think those are the two books that I'm going to go with. Yeah, that's great. Actually, I would say on the first one, Imperial Twilight, the author, Stephen uh, Platt, actually has another good book I would recommend uh, mm -hmm. called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. It's about the Taiping Rebellion that we, we briefly mentioned that is a yeah. very interesting look on one of the most important and certainly certainly most deadly civil wars yeah. in human history that is, I don't think, talked about much in the west partially because i think it happened during a time of the american civil war and you know the, the, the eyes were distracted from this terrible conflict yeah. uh but really kind of highlights some of the the convulsions that were happening in chinese society leading uh to to the modern era um mm -hmm. and so that's another i think good book if you want to read about something that's more peripheral uh to this topic um to my list <laughs> you should add that <laughs> to your list a few others i'll just kind of mention there's another uh book by uh, Julia Lavelle called The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of Modern China that I think does a good job just kind of telling the history of the conflict and, and mm -hmm. you know, China's uh, look at it today. I would also recommend for a kind of more broad overview of books about kind of more modern China. Um, there's an, a historian named Frank DeCotter who's written a kind of series of books on more modern China, but of course, a lot of these issues, you know, that, that pour out from the 19th yeah. century are very important to the way China operates and sees operates in the world and sees itself so i would also he's got a great one that i 
read fairly recently called China After Mao, which I think is a very uh, interesting look at. But he has a whole series of books that I would also very much recommend. Right. Well, um, so I think that's uh, I think that's going to be about it. That's that's it for uh, for our discussion of, of the opium wars, the both the old and the new. Uh, definitely some <laughs> uh, some hot takes from us about uh, it's funny because I'm I'm the I'm the American who is defending the British <laughs> Empire here uh, from the charges that it was just fighting a war on behalf of drugs um, in, in this discussion. But I think this is a, a great dis- discussion on an important topic for sure. Yep. It was great. Good stuff. All right. Well, until next week, uh, rejoin us on History Reconsidered. Uh, Thank you so much for, for listening. Tune in next week. Thank you.